Hey guys, welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, and my guest today is Pierre. Thanks for coming on, Pierre. Thanks for having me on again, Stefan. Excellent. Yeah, Pierre's one of my repeat guests. Uh, he's one of the best guys to follow in this space. He is, just for anyone who doesn't know him, he is a co-founder of the Nakamoto Institute and and also a co-host of the Noted Podcast, which is basically one of the top podcasts in this space. And he's also the founder of Bitcoin Advisory. And our theme for today is Bitcoin governance. So Pierre recently wrote some articles and has done some speeches and podcast appearances in relation to this. So obviously those will be in the show notes page. Um, so I suppose let's start with Bitcoin governance. Why do we care, Pierre? Uh, so I think that you've had some past guests on like Murad and uh, Saifuddin that have really laid out the monetary economics of Bitcoin and why they matter and why they are good for the future of humanity, really. I mean, as a civilization, uh, maximizing the uh, capital accumulation and, and wealth that we have. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, that, that as a species is what's going to allow us to survive and get into space and uh, escape this uh, this rock. But anyway, without getting too cosmic, uh, so governance is important. Bitcoin's governance is important because Bitcoin is important. Uh, and Bitcoin did not emerge from the mind of Satoshi as a, a perfect thing. Uh, and I think that that's widely recognized that there are improvements that can be made to the Bitcoin protocol. And so we have to uh, examine how are those changes to the protocol made? Uh, what do they affect? And um, what? how are they selected for uh, specifically? Yep, cool. And then who are the relevant parties to think about? So, uh, I think that we could we could really go in order of their involvement. Um, so you've got researchers, uh, and they are, you know, in academia or in industry or independent, uh, and they're trying to think of ways to tweak the Bitcoin protocol to address either a problem that they've seen or to create a, a new feature that they're interested in in uh, seeing implemented on the Bitcoin protocol. Um, and then after that, uh, you, you have a process called the uh, Bitcoin Improvement Proposals. Um, and so there's different people involved at, at that point that are uh, looking at Bitcoin Improvement Proposals uh, and then merging them into the uh, BIP repository where those improvement proposals are kind of canonified. Um, and then you have people who implement these BIPs. Uh, they, since Bitcoin generally is, you know, has one reference implementation, and we can get into that later, but uh, the, the implementers are C++ developers. And so that's another constituency of uh, what's called Bitcoin core contributors. Um, and, and there's overlap over all these groups, right? Uh, and then you have uh, people who run a Bitcoin full node. And that ranges from someone who is running a Bitcoin full node without owning any Bitcoins, which we can talk about why that might be a little useless. Uh, but there's also on the other end of the spectrum, uh, large exchanges that are verifying uh, millions of dollars worth of Bitcoins uh, coming in and out uh, using their Bitcoin full node. 
Um, so then finally we have the, the miners and the miners generally would be running a full node, but that's really actually only the mining pools, uh, pool operators that run a full node currently. Uh, and the miners themselves are just, uh, running SHA-256 squared calculations. Uh, so, uh, they, they have a role to play in, in the governance as well. And, and we can debate about the extent of that role. Yeah, great. Great summary of uh, the many moving pieces that are in play in the Bitcoin world. So one concept I've seen you talk about, and I think you do really well in explaining this, is you talk about this concept of network governance specifically as and not a minor democracy or not a kind of developer governance or benevolent dictator. What do you mean when you say network governance? Yeah, so... Uh, I think that explaining network governance kind of necessitates explaining what it is that we are governing and what what's being governed with Bitcoin's governance is the uh, block and transaction validation rules. And so this is a long set of different rules. Uh, some of them are minutia that aren't particularly uh, interesting to people. Um, and others have uh, caused holy wars within Bitcoin. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I have in mind, the, obviously, the block size limit, which, which is now the block weight limit. Um, and so that, that particular block validation rule um, has caused a huge amount of controversy. Uh, but there's a lot of other uh, different validation rules uh, that are uh, much less controversial. And so... The the definition of Bitcoin really is these these rules, because if you are not following these rules and you are creating an invalid transaction or an invalid uh, block, that invalid transaction and that invalid block will not be propagated, will not be communicated by other nodes that are following the rules. And so you immediately kind of get uh, sidelined by the network and you're no longer part of the Bitcoin network if you're not following those rules. Now, I think that the issue with with that explanation, so that's that's network governance, which is basically that if you do not follow the rules of the nodes on the network, then you will get excluded from the network and you're, you're um, you know, removed. Uh, but the, the, the controversy is which network, which set of validation rules do we call Bitcoin? And we saw last year, and we're continuing to see it with Bitcoin Cash, where you have the, the BCH people who say, well, our set of validation rules is Bitcoin. And that is uh, their point of view. And then you have the BTC people who say, well, no, it's our set of validation rules and thus our network that is Bitcoin. And last year we had the SegWit, uh, well, you know, they, they, they called it SegWit2x, but it's really just the 2x part, right? Um, the, the 2x people uh, led by Jeff Garzik who were saying that, no, our set of validation rules is Bitcoin. And so... It's kind of a, it's an interesting uh, issue where there's no central authority that says 
uh, this this set of validation rules is deemed to be Bitcoin and everyone has to follow that. And if anyone disagrees, they're wrong. And if they insist, then, you know, we'll we'll throw them in jail or something. Uh, so there's there's no like there's no trademark. Uh, there's no. Um, and in fact, there's it's very challenging to kind of think of a legal precedent uh, unless we kind of take a step back and think about it at a, a social level uh, and not just a, a technological level. And I think that at a social level, uh, what Bitcoin is, which set of validation rules Bitcoin is, uh, is kind of the same question of what what technical properties of a computer make a computer a laptop versus a desktop? And there's no there's a formal definition of it, right? Uh, and there, there, everyone can disagree. You know, you could say, well, uh, an iPad is a laptop, uh, or you could say that, hey, uh, a, 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 a the new iMac is a laptop because it's it's so compact and self contained. So uh, everyone can have these kinds of debates over uh, semantics. And at the end of the day, it's kind of what in it, when you're actually uh, engaging in commerce with someone else and you're actually exchanging value, you're, you're part of, you know, Cadillacy in, in Austrian terms. Um, what is it that you and your trading partner are agreeing on? And so if you sell a, a brick on eBay and you call it a laptop and the person you're you're breaking that the the counterparty's expectations they were expecting a laptop and you mailed them a brick now if if you can just go in front of a judge and say well look your honor uh i i call bricks laptops and uh it's not really my problem that this other person doesn't share that same definition as i do uh, because that's just my definition of a, of what a laptop is. It's it's a it's a cement brick, um, and so obviously a, a judge would say, well, let's look at like what would a reasonable person, you know, consider a a laptop to be, and that's kind of the legal standard of like what would a reasonable person uh, think, and that's that's grounded in a, a a social reality of what's called like intersubjective reality which is that we have all these words to talk about things uh, and we have to have some kind of bridge between those two. Um, and otherwise, I mean, society completely falls apart if, if we don't have this, right? If we, if we com- completely lose the ability to communicate meaning with each other, then uh, not only is commerce impossible, but e- even just any kind of social interaction it quickly devolves into being impossible. So uh, the... This let's bring it back to Bitcoin, right? So if you were to sell BCH to someone and you say, "Oh, you know, I'm I'm selling you Bitcoin," um, then it's kind of a question of how many other people agree with you that you sold that person Bitcoin uh, before it it becomes a preponderance and it, it becomes you know what the reasonable person would expect, uh, and that's deliberately. I think I think I mean it's not deliberately unanswerable, but it it's inherently unanswerable. And that's a good thing. Otherwise, Bitcoin would be centralized, right? If, if there was one person who, who said, hey, this is Bitcoin and this is not, um, then Bitcoin would be completely centralized and, and they could change the definition at a whim. Uh, so 
it's good that Bitcoin is an emergent social consensus among people, uh, but it's disorienting for folks who want to make changes to the validation rules of Bitcoin, uh, but ultimately are, are stifled by the um, difficulty of changing so many people, people's minds about what Bitcoin is and shifting what what I call or you know what I think is called a, a shelling point. And we can talk about kind of what a shelling point is if, if you'd like. Yeah, those are fantastic points. I, lo- I really like the point you're making that it's really, and it's there's parallels there with like Austrian economics and praxeology and this idea of intersubjective perception of value and what really, what is, what is the social consensus around that? Uh, so yeah, maybe it will be a good idea to then uh, go now into the process of governance. And then as we go through that, then we can talk about how that will help, you know, at what point people start to move that showing point. Um, so maybe uh, we'll start with that process of governance. So uh, in your article, you talk about uh, research. So do you want to outline a little bit around that? Yeah, so uh, there's there's a variety of, of people. And I, I actually think that there's not enough people doing research uh, on, on the Bitcoin protocol. Um, but basically, the idea is that you would... Um, Use your 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 tacit and explicit knowledge about both Bitcoin, its properties, um, and your your vision for where you think it should go, uh, and have all of that coalesce into your ability to do research and um, run experiments, run simulations, and see you know what kind of changes do I want to make to the Bitcoin protocol. Um, so I think that there's there's not enough people doing that. Uh, part of it might just be like a uh, it's it's you know a public good. It's uh, there's there's not enough underprovided, huh? Yeah, but um, I actually I mean it's not that big of a problem from an economic point of view that there's not a lot of research going on because you kind of do want the protocol to uh, remain very stable and and not not changing willy nilly, um, but. Uh, once, once that, yeah, we, we, and so one of the questions is like, well, what if people are researching the wrong things or not researching enough? Um, and I think that those are, there are fair criticisms of, uh, Bitcoin's governance at, at the research stage. Um, especially because like if it's self-directed researchers who are not, uh, employed by industry or by large hodlers, like they're they're just going to research what they're inherently intrinsically interested in, uh, and that might not necessarily align with what users are expecting to have researched. Yeah, fair points. Okay, and then so the next stage you outline after research is a proposal. So uh, as you mentioned earlier with the BIP, uh, what are some of the forms that a Bitcoin proposal can take? Yeah, so I I, I think that every single change to the Bitcoin protocol has been in the form of a BIP, um, you know, after after BIP started, uh, which uh, was pretty early in the game. Um, but obviously, I mean, Satoshi was making changes willy nilly without putting out a, uh, a proposal. And I, I actually I think that's an important thing to dig into, which is that um, Bitcoin's governance has been formalizing in a sense and maturing 
as Bitcoin itself has been maturing and as the amount of value that is secured by the Bitcoin network has been increasing. So back in the day, like Satoshi could put out uh, a, a change to the Bitcoin protocol uh, and not really you know, have much scrutiny made to it and it would just get merged and he would uh, release it out into the wild and people would run it without really questioning it. Um, now changes go through a lot of scrutiny and uh, this that scrutiny starts with the proposal. And so when they send an email to the Bitcoin dev mailing list, uh, they might link to a BIP. Um, eventually that, that BIP will have a number assigned to it uh, and that that bit number is kind of what it'll colloquially be known as uh, as shorthand, uh, and you'll you'll hear you know references to different bit numbers, you know, like one forty four, one forty two, or one forty, or whatever, um, and or bit one forty eight for UASF. Uh, so these um, these bits have no they're they're not binding in a sense, right? So uh, they're more about trying to solicit feedback from people and seeing, gauging what the level of interest is uh, within the developer community about different changes. And and it's also that they're they're written in, in plain English. Now, some of them have like more specification to them and the, they may have some pseudocode in it. But generally, it's it's something that a uh, the general public would be able to read and provide feedback if they're knowledgeable about Bitcoin's uh, protocol. Yeah, great points. Uh, I think, you know, Satoshi, naughty boy, not putting in a bit for all those changes he did. <laughs> um, yeah, but, although, I mean, he didn't really have a lot of people to communicate it with, right? And so... Yeah, no, might, exactly. I'm been, kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, but he, he did he did uh, put out, like, forum posts uh, in the Bitcoin Talk forum. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's a completely different world. Yeah, the process has just evolved and changed, and I think we've all been learning as we go in a sense of how, 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 what is the quote unquote correct way to make a, a change to Bitcoin? And then not just the small changes, but really the big consensus changes, uh, which are the ones that get more contentious. Uh, okay. So then let's say, you, you know, we've gone through research, we've gone through proposal. What's the next stage? So the next stage would be to, to, to take that BIP and to actually write the code that would be uh, implementing that bit essentially, and that implementation would generally happen at a as kind of a pull request on the uh, Bitcoin Core repository on the reference implementation uh, written in C plus uh, plus, and if there's um, so there's a there's a process of code review around the uh, implementation both of BIPs, of changes to the protocol, but also of any any kind of change to uh, Bitcoin's uh, reference implementation. But the changes to the uh, protocol r- receive a much higher degree of scrutiny uh, than any of the other changes. Um, because if there was to be a bug in a change to the protocol, then that bug essentially, I mean either becomes part of the protocol or uh, could cause a loss of funds, could cause a chain split, um, could cause some real damage to Bitcoin if it were to slip by the reviewer's eyes. 
And so this is a very important uh, stage in the process where um, at the end of the day, it's it's what's in the code that matters. It, it, th- what's in the BIP is, is irrelevant. People are not running the BIP. People are running the compiled code. Um, and so having a, a level of quality assurance around that, of, of testing, of uh, people really trying to trying to break it essentially and uh deploying it on a test net and uh trying to figure out ways where this will have unexpected results or cause uh side effects that were you know unanticipated so it's really it's really hard to anticipate the unanticipated but that's that's what has to happen at the implementation stage if if we want to minimize and mitigate the risk of uh, a consensus change yeah, great points. Um, and then are there, this one, we're sort of leaning towards this concept of can can Bitcoiners try to implement a certain tech and route around, so to speak, what the developers actually wanted? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think that there's, uh, you'll often hear people say that the Bitcoin core developers or core contributors are gatekeepers um, because they they are the ones who control the uh, what's you know the reference implementations Git repository and they're the ones who re- release the client the node software that is widely seen as being the um, unofficial official uh, you know co- or uh, client or node software that should be run by everyone. Uh, and so there's an element of truth to that, obviously, in that uh, participants in the Bitcoin ecosystem are going to be very apprehensive about running other pieces of software. Uh, and part of the reason is that there's kind of a path dependency in that this this Git repository on GitHub, you know, Bitcoin slash Bitcoin is, in a sense, the successor to Satoshi's code base. and is kind of on um, on this path where it, it is the the descendant of Satoshi's code base, and thus realistically has the lowest risk, um, and you know as the more most battle tested uh, code base. Uh, but I think that 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 can be overstated. I think that it's more than just the fact that uh, this this Git repository and set of contributors has been around for a while. I think that it has a lot to do with the, the Bitcoin core projects philosophy as well. Um, and their, their competence, frankly, uh, that they have been very good stewards of this code base and have released very reliable software over the years uh, so there's been some hiccups along the ways, uh, you know, for example, the 0.7 to 0.8. Um, and, you know, I don't want to point fingers around that, but the people who were most directly responsible for that are, are no longer with the project. Um, but <laughs> at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's kind of, it's on everyone, uh, to everyone involved with the Bitcoin core project to be releasing the highest quality software possible. And that's why I think that there's such a strong culture of code review uh, in Bitcoin Core, where you can have 
six, eight, ten people reviewing every line of code for a particularly important pull request. And um, that's the way it should be. And so I think that that's part of the reason why uh, the the quote unquote uh, reference implementation has so much credibility behind it is that it, it has a very good engineering culture. Now, all that said, if someone wants to take all of that code, which is open source, right? It's it's all available for free, uh, as in beer and as in speech, uh, and you can copy paste all of that code. You can fork it in in the in the Git sense, not in the um, in the Bitcoin sense, but you you can clone that repository uh, and make your own little changes to the code or or big changes uh, and compile it and release it out to the public and try to persuade people to run your code. Now, to persuade people to run your code and to run your your binaries, uh, you're you're going to have to demonstrate either that you have a, a track record that gives you some credibility in this or you know you you put out some very well thought through medium articles or or uh, some very compelling tweets or wh- whatever it may be that that persuades people that hey you know what uh, not only am I and you know I'm going to run this code and I'm, I'm going to rely on it and I'm going to use it to verify payments that I receive when I'm expecting to receive bitcoins and I expect other people to be running this code as well because it is obviously superior to uh, the previous code that we were running. Uh, so that process of persuasion uh, can be very challenging if you don't have a track record of uh, not only contributing to uh, the existing uh, reference implementation, but also of having ideas about changes to the protocol that are just widely recognized as being compelling and also not being compelling to the reference implementation to the Bitcoin core contributors, right? Because the premise of, of the question here is that the someone has a change to Bitcoin, which the developers uh, find to be lacking, but that the public would find to be compelling. And I just, I, I think that that, scenario is is kind of far-fetched even though it's it's theoretically possible and and interesting um but the closest we got to it was with uasf last year bip 148 where essentially um shaolin fry who is a uh pseudonymous uh developer uh created a change to the bitcoin protocol rules where after a certain point, um, blocks that did not have SegWit enabled in them would not be accepted um, by the node as valid blocks. And so if you were sending a payment to someone who is signaling UASF and UASF has activated, uh, that that payment wouldn't go through if, if you were incapable of getting it included in a block that was mined by a UASF miner by, or not, sorry, not by a UASF miner, a SegWit miner, um, which is, it's subtly different. Uh, And so that was seen by the Bitcoin core contributors as 
if 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 that were included in the reference implementation, that it would be disruptive to the ecosystem. And I think that they were right in having this concern. And simultaneously, I think that the UASF uh, contingent were right in in asserting the sovereignty of the nodes over what gets included, what is a valid block. Uh, because there's kind of this perception that, hey, it's the miners that get to decide what a valid block is. And I, I think that's actually uh, a profoundly wrong reading of, of how the Bitcoin system works in practice. Now, granted, you know, maybe that's not what was written in the in the white paper. We can we can debate that because there's language there that's debatable as well. Um, but uh, in practice, uh, Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin's the validity of Bitcoin blocks and transaction is set by people running nodes and accepting payments with them. Um, but anyway, I'm going kind of on a tangent here. Uh, yeah, so UASF was the situation where Shalin Fry copied the Bitcoin core repository made the changes that he wanted to see made to that code and then released the binaries and persuaded such a large contingent of the Bitcoin ecosystem to run his code that the miners ultimately capitulated and, uh, you know, went along with Segwit. So it was kind of a, um, a game of chicken of who, who would, who would, uh, you know, turn the wheel first, but, uh, ultimately, the the SegWit activation happened, uh, and there's lots of controversy around that, but uh, we can save that for another podcast. Okay, yeah, great points there around how there's a sense of path dependency, but also uh, a factor of competency of the team who are developing and coding into Bitcoin. Um, the, the next thing that I thought would be good for you to outline for the listeners would just be around the forms of signaling that are available. How, how can people signal which side or what, what they want? Uh, yeah, so I guess we could, we could first point out that uh, there, there is no good. And I'm, I'm, let's, well, let's be more specific. There's no perfect way of signaling. Um, and thus, in a sense, Bitcoin's consensus is a shelling point, which is a a focal point that uh, people agree on without ever communicating. And so the, the, the best example of it is uh, this question of if you are meeting a complete stranger in New York City and you have to figure out where, where to meet them, where, where do you think that you would run into them and at what time? Uh, and so I, I, I don't know if you know the answer already, Stefan, do you? Yes, so I've I've heard uh, the uh, the example, which normally is twelve noon at Central Station, which makes great sense to me. Yeah, so it would be cheating if I asked you in earnest uh, <laughs> at what time, but or or where. But so yeah, that's exactly right. And the 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 point there is that like it's not that everyone shows up at Grand Central at noon. In fact. Um, I think that it's like 60 to 80% of people who do. But uh, it, it remains that that's kind of where the plurality of people show up. Uh, and that's based on kind of the topography of the map, right? Which is you know, when you think about, okay, what's kind of the, the, the best transportation hub in New York, Grand Central? Okay, and then we think about, well, what, 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 you know, what about the Statue of Liberty? All right, that's wildly inconvenient to get to. You know, the the person wouldn't be there. Um, 
Or what about like the Empire State Building? Well, that's kind of out of your way as well. And uh, so all, all these different options where you can kind of rule them out and you can determine, well, you know, Grand Central, if you really think about it, is probably the best geographic location. And then in terms of the time, it's like, well, you know, noon is is kind of, you know, whether the person's a morning person or an evening person, we don't really know. Uh, everyone's awake at noon, generally, <laughs> unless they've really had a hard night out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, people are off for lunch. Uh, noon just kind of makes sense. Um, and so we can know these things without ever communicating with the other person, right? Uh, and without ever telling them, hey, look, what's your favorite place to meet in Manhattan? Or what's your favorite time to meet? Uh, and you just show up and there you are. So that's kind of a shelling point. And I think that Bitcoin functions much in the same way. Now, a, a big part of it is back to this issue of path dependency, right? And so the, the default place for us to meet is where we met yesterday. Uh, and so that's kind of what the consensus rules were when Satoshi put them in place. So that's what we have today is that the overwhelming majority of the existing block and transaction validation rules are what Satoshi made them on day zero uh, of Bitcoin. And we've kind of been on this path of, all right, we've, we're 500,000 blocks in. What are the validation rules for what Bitcoin is today? Uh, well, I mean, they're going to be the same that they were 10 minutes ago. <laughs> and to to change that shelling point is extremely difficult and thank god because if it wasn't then we would have keynesians we would have inflationists socialists all, all sorts of people who want to change bitcoin's monetary policy uh trying to shift that 21 million bitcoin shelling point uh you know any way possible so it's good that it's hard to shift uh but it's 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 bad in the sense that if, if we're trying to make it so that bitcoin um the base layer is improving and upgrading, then we've got to kind of herd a bunch of cats uh, because people are going to have all sorts of different ideas about how to change the the protocol that might be pulling in different directions um, or are just uh, pulling against the status quo. So you got to signal what changes to the Bitcoin protocol we want to make and what what shelling point are you going to be showing up at? And you can't really... So the way to do this is on social media, right? So you, you hashtag UASF or hashtag No2X. Uh, if No2X in, in that case was about, you know, staying on the existing shelling point and uh, it's, it's keeping the status quo. But UASF was about moving to a new shelling point of refusing to accept uh, non-segwit blocks. Um, and so these are, these are imperfect forms of signaling due to what's called a Sybil attack, which is basically that someone could create a bunch of fake Twitter accounts or pay people on Twitter to, to signal these things. Uh, and the, the countermeasure to a Sybil attack like this is ironically enough is having a web of trust that is having people that, you know, in your life. You know that they're intelligent people. You know that they actually do use Bitcoin. They actually own Bitcoin. They actually care about Bitcoin. You actually respect their opinion on Bitcoin and what Bitcoin is and what it stands for and what its future is, what its philosophy and its past is. All these 
really uh, soft, you know, social aspects of Bitcoin of of of, of a Bitcoiner. You know, you, we we each have our list of who we consider to be Bitcoiners and who we consider to be shitcoiners and who we consider to be no coiners, right? And and we have within those lists people we trust more or less for lack of a better word and it's it's the the paradox the irony of it is that we talk about bitcoin being a trustless system uh and wanting to maximize trustlessness but i actually i think that uh bitcoin is a a way of compartmentalizing trust and of really uh having trust be limited to the things that you want to trust people for uh, and then removing trust in a lot of other aspects of it. Uh, and in a sense, it actually kind of makes trust more important. Um, it, it shifts trust. It doesn't uh, remove it entirely in, in my mind. Um, but yeah, so if you have a web of trust and you know that, hey, I, I trust Stefan Lavera. Uh, I know that he controls this Twitter account. I've never met him in person, which is crazy to think about, but I've known you on Twitter since 2013. Um, so if you had a hashtag on your account about what kind of consensus change you want to see happen and what kind of software you're running and what kind of software you want to see other people running, um, that's going to have a lot more credibility than someone who just joined Twitter a month ago and has you know the default... Uh, you know, Twitter bio and the Twitter and image. The egg. Yeah, the egg. And and they don't have any <laughs> tweets. They don't even follow me. You know, it's like, okay, why would why would this uh, account have any credibility? If I think the lesson there is if you're not following Pierre Rashad, are you even a Bitcoiner? Yeah, that's a valid question uh, at this point. But no, that you know, we'll give people the benefit of the doubt. There's there's folks out there who uh, haven't gotten around to hitting that follow button. So if that's one of you, uh, take a moment right now and uh, log on to Twitter and, and do that. Um, and follow Stefan Levera too, obviously. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, so this this web of trust is kind of a way to mitigate the issue of um, being civil attack. Uh, now, the, the other signaling mechanism that people will talk about is minor signaling. And I actually, I think minor signaling is even more problematic than Twitter hashtag signaling. Um, and the problem with minor signaling is that miners really don't have a strong view on what should be going on with the Bitcoin protocol itself. Um, what, what they care about is kind of the, the, the fiat value of Bitcoin, right? Which is that... If the fiat value of Bitcoin is going up, uh, they're they're paying their their electricity costs out in fiat, and that creates a spread for them to uh, make a, a handsome profit on. Um, until you know, obviously, the hash rate goes up and the difficulty adjusts. Um, but the fiat value is completely disconnected from changes in Bitcoin's protocol, uh, and I think that that's something that is very hard for people. Uh, to wrap their minds around because we we kind of have this instinct of, well, if the Bitcoin protocol improves, then Bitcoin's price is going to go up, right? Uh, and I think that's really misguided. Yeah, it's not a one-to-one -one relationship and it's, it, it's sometimes leading and sometimes lagging. So 
I, I would question not, whether yeah. there's I, I would question whether there's a relationship at all, actually. Uh I think that the the relationship between Bitcoin's protocol and the price is the one the monetary policy, right? The 21 million Bitcoins. And so that that has to do with the block header uh verification rules. And so the block header has the um you know the mining in it right the the, the nonce and uh, all of that uh, the, the difficulty and uh, how many uh, ha- how many bitcoins are getting created in, in a block um, but uh, so that monetary policy I think is kind of the the first driver of bitcoin's price uh, the second one is the credibility of that monetary policy and so that has to do with what we're discussing today right the the governance of of bitcoin. Uh, and so the the harder it is to change that 21 million cap, uh, the the more credible Bitcoin's monetary policy is, uh, and that lends a lot of uh, confidence to investors. Uh, and then the last element of it, I think, is just how how much time has elapsed since Bitcoin's inception. Um, and I think those three combined form the fundamental value of Bitcoin around which the price oscillates based on the animal spirits of these insane speculators that are on BitMEX going 100x leverage, right? Uh, and that are uh, piling in when the price is going up and really uh, momentum trading uh, and then freaking out and panic selling when, when the price is going down. Um, and you know, they're, they're trading on noise, on, on news, on epiphenomenon like that. But uh, really, I think that yeah, the, the monetary policy is what all of this oscillates around, uh, and 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 time, the the Lindy effect. Um, if every day that Bitcoin continues to exist is another day that we can continue to expect it to exist. Um, yeah, yeah. So all that to say that I think that adding you know a new opcode to Bitcoin's uh, Bitcoin's uh, consensus rules or or increasing the block weight limit. Or you know, segwit like I don't think those those increase Bitcoin's price, and I don't think that they increase Bitcoin's value. Um, so they're really they're they, they they occur because people have an itch to scratch, um, and that might be that they they want to use Bitcoin uh, as a uh, you know settlement layer or as a payments layer. Uh, and so that's why they're going in and making these changes to the consensus rules. But I don't think that it changes Bitcoin on, on a monetary level and uh, on an investment level. Uh, it, yeah. it, you know, it, it helps on a payments level. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Okay, well, I think that while we're on this topic of the shelling point, do you have any comments on what parts of Bitcoin would be very, very difficult to change or almost impossible? And what other parts of Bitcoin are more amenable to change? Yeah, um, I mean, there's. I think there's a long list of entirely non-controversial changes that could happen, uh, even in a hard fork. Um, and really, the controversy is about the hard fork itself, not the changes themselves. Um, but yeah, th- things like um, we can actually we can look at past changes to uh, to Bitcoin's validation rules and see what what shelling points are very easy to shift. And so I think that um, 
transaction formats, you know, like SegWit, like that was probably the most controversial change that's happened in the history of Bitcoin, uh, which was, uh, you know, re- removing signatures, uh, but also just changing signatures. So right now uh, we're using ECDSA. Uh, there's a proposal or there's, I don't know if it, uh, yeah, so I think there's a BIP now. Yeah, that's right. There was recently a BIP made for changing to Schnorr. And right now it seems like a shoe in but I would really caution, and I, I, I might start harping on this on Twitter soon. I, I think that there needs to be more input from a wider range of people, especially cryptographers, on what what Bitcoin's signature, uh, you know, scheme should be. And uh, right now we have Peter Willa, uh, you know, who's associated with Blockstream and uh, he's kind of the main driving force behind Schnorr. And uh, there's, there's a lot of other people who agree with him. Uh, And I I think that there's no harm in having more people uh, vocalizing either their opposition or their support to Schnorr. Uh, what what I would not want is that um, Schnorr kind of gets decided on um, by default uh, rather than by a strong process of deliberation and then rough consensus. Uh, so it seems that that's going to be uncontroversial, but I want there to be more controversy about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... And then you can on the other end of the spectrum, you have things like changing the uh, block reward, so increasing the block size limit beyond twenty one million, and having like a continuous inflation rate, like that, hugely, hugely controversial, and in my mind, basically inconceivable at this point. I, I don't. There, there are people who are debating the long term security of Bitcoin without having. If there is no inflation and we're entirely reliant on transaction fees, I, I think that debate is worth having and it's interesting. But I, at the end of the day, I don't think that it actually will uh, uh, lead to a, an increase in in Bitcoin's uh, hard cap. And um, I would be very disappointed if it did. And so the only reason that I think the 21 million hard cap would be changed is if there was a, a serious uh, serious security issue around it, uh, and I, I don't think that even even the 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 people who are saying that there is a problem with the hard cap, I don't think that the 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 arguments that they're coming up with are compelling enough to to say that it's a security a serious security security issue. Uh, I think that what they're pointing out is kind of an inconvenience, not a security issue, which is that you we're going to have to wait for a lot of confirmations um, in the future. And so to have the same level of finality that we have with six confirmations today, maybe we'll need 60 or 600 or 6,000 confirmations in the future. Um, but that's not, I, I don't think that's a reason to to change the 21 million hard cap. Um, now, so in between those two extremes, we have um, changing the block weight limit. And I've seen people argue that we can do that with a soft fork. I've seen people argue that that's only doable with a hard fork. Uh, in either direction, it's controversial. The reason it's controversial is is very similar to the reason that the block size limit debate was highly controversial before SegWit, which is that um, the full nodes 
maintain a full history of the Bitcoin blockchain. And in order to have a, a UTXO set that is kind of um, fully validated in that they've looked at every single block since the Genesis block, and that's what has formed this UTXO set that is the the record of who owns what Bitcoins, uh, which, I mean, frankly, is like the most important thing in Bitcoin, right? The UTXO set. Um you have to download every single block in the history of Bitcoin and then run it as a, you know a change to the UTXO set and validate everything associated with it, all the transactions, all the inputs and the outputs and you know the, the block header and whatnot. So all of this all of this overhead uh, is put onto nodes and nodes are not compensated for this. So, Essentially, it's kind of a negative externality. Um, the reason that people run full nodes is so that they can verify payments that they personally are receiving uh, and to verify that essentially that their their one Bitcoin is one out of 21 million Bitcoins and not one out of 26 million or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, they can make sure that they're on the right consensus. And anyway, uh, all this to say that it, a change to the block weight limit would be controversial because you're you're increasing the negative externality, uh, and you're also changing the economics of Bitcoin in the sense of uh, if we're concerned about the Bitcoin hash rate at equilibrium in the future, then we should be concerned about how do we maximize miner revenue, and the way to maximize miner revenue is to create artificial block. Uh, space scarcity uh, so that we can have a good competitive fee market um, and increasing block supply uh, affects that that market yeah yeah agreed okay um, so I think that sort of is a good uh, discussion around deployment how about now enforcement so I've seen um, some one good way I've heard of putting it is uh, one of the guys on Twitter, Stop and Decrypt, one of his articles, he talks about Bitcoin as an impenetrable fortress of validation. Uh, so, Pierre, how are changes enforced in Bitcoin? Uh, I hope you have Stop and Decrypt on your podcast uh, soon because he is uh, quite prolific on, on Medium. He's uh, written some really good articles. Uh, so I think that... I, I did touch upon it earlier in the episode of essentially if someone is transmitting an invalid uh, transaction or block, then they get disconnected from the network. And that's what that's what makes it an in impenetrable fortress of validation. Um, but in terms of, uh, I mean, with the deployment, you know, you got to make sure that everyone's running the, the same consensus code that you're expecting them to run. Uh, and with the enforcement part, what it comes down to is if you are if you are selling a good or a service or let's say you're selling your fiat for bitcoins and you want to receive bitcoins you you have to choose what is my definition of bitcoin so if you're a bcasher your definition of bitcoin bch uh you know you're going to go download that that node software but uh, if you're thinking that you want to you want to stick to the current shelling point of Bitcoin BTC, then you got to go download the reference implementation, 
or other implementations that are currently compatible with the reference implementation. Now, with the caveat that maybe maybe run both the reference implementation and an alternative implementation just to make sure that you're you're in consensus. Um, and then th- that person is going to create the person that is selling bitcoins to you is going to create a Bitcoin transaction for you, and they're going to uh, broadcast it to the Bitcoin network. And your node as part of the Bitcoin network is going to eventually receive that transaction that's being broadcast. Uh, and if if you determine it to be valid, then it will be added to your mempool and it will appear in your wallet as having been seen as an unconfirmed transaction. So at that point, that's how you have enforced a definition of Bitcoin, which is that if that person had sent you an invalid transaction, you would never see it in your mempool and you would never see it in your wallet, which is attached to your full node. Uh, And thus, you would never recognize that that person had sent you Bitcoins and you would be on the phone with them asking them, where are my Bitcoins, (laughs) right? So you have have enforced the Bitcoin protocol uh, by, by, by your actions and by delegating your actions to your node and automating them with your node. Now, eventually, you would want to make sure that uh, that transaction gets included in a valid block. So uh, a miner, if they are running the same consensus rules of Bitcoin, a Bitcoin miner, uh, now, granted, I say, you know, a Bitcoin miner, but if they're mining SHA-256 squared, they don't really care, like, what consensus rules they're mining. Is, uh, you know, they, they want to get paid. And whatever is profitable to mine at that point in time is what they'll mine. Uh, but setting aside that, um, they they will include that uh, transaction in a, a block uh, that then that block will get broadcasted to the Bitcoin network. And your node as part of the Bitcoin network will eventually receive that block. And your node will verify that that block, the block header, uh, has the correct proof of work in it. And the uh, contents of the block um, are all valid as well. All the transactions in it are valid, uh, and the you know the the Merkle tree is is all valid and all that, and and that your transaction is one of those block or, or one of those transactions in the block. Um, and at that point, you can say with some confidence that not only do I own bitcoins, but uh, there is some finality to the transaction that was uh, broadcasted to me. Uh, and the, your confidence in that finality uh, only increases as new blocks come in, you validate them, they're Bitcoin blocks, you add them, and the depth uh, at which your transaction is in the blockchain uh, continues to increase. And you know people have different rules of thumbs of what depth they consider to be safe, uh, but you know it can be from two to six. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that. And that's a good articulation as well of, let's say I liked one particular side of a fork and I didn't want the other. Well, that is how, you know, running that node is how I can ensure that I stay on the chain or the side that I want to stay on. So, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think now, now that we've sort of run through the process of, you know, Bitcoin governance, with the full benefit of hindsight, let's, you know, just... I'm curious to get your comment or, you know, sort of post-mortem on some of the failed changes in Bitcoin's history. So, you know, what did they do wrong? And one example that might be, it could be that they 
did not build consensus before attempting to fork. Do you have any comments? Yeah, although, I mean, I think that, you know, if you if you try to build consensus before you fork and you fail, but you really want to fork and you think that after you forked that people will eventually recognize the superiority of your consensus, uh, then you really have no choice but to just go ahead and do it. Um, now, as I was saying, like, I don't think that Bitcoin's value comes from, uh, you know, making changes to the protocol itself. So I don't think that uh, that would ultimately result in success. And as we see with the the Bitcoin Cash hard fork, uh, where it, it's it's really, it hasn't, its trading has not broken out any higher than it, it you know, what it was at, uh, at the beginning. And it reflects the, you know, 10% of Bitcoiners ended up, and that's that's being very generous, 10%, but it's probably less than that, um, yeah. ended up going to uh, the Bitcoin Cash side of the hard fork. Um, but I th- there, in terms of like, okay, you know, this person, you know, Gavin Andreessen and Mike Hearn and, and Jeff Garzik, they all failed to gather consensus on their changes. And, and you know, let's... Let's not take that as a given. Let's look at why why is it that they failed? Um, is it because of the changes themselves, right? The the substance of the consensus changes. I think that's certainly a, an element of it. Um, I think that it, it would have uh, gone perhaps a lot more smoothly if the increases to the block size limit and in, in Jeff Garzik's instance, the block weight limit, if if those changes had been uh, at the margin rather than a doubling, then or a quadrupling, or you know, like I think that that uh, Gavin wanted to go to thirty two megabyte blocks, like crazy stuff. But anyway, um, those changes are just much too radical. Like I, I don't think that they had a chance on their merits uh, from the beginning. Uh, so I think that if they had uh, done a marginal thing where it's like we're going to increase the block size limit or the block weight limit by let's say 50 kilobytes a month or a quarter then you know that's uh that's something that maybe would have gathered a lot more consensus uh around um so setting aside the substance of it then we can kind of get into the the communication strategy of it um so basically they were they were not they didn't get a lot of traction with the Bitcoin core developers uh and so they took it to the public uh and Gavin wrote some blog posts um about increasing the block size limit at the time and you know they they circulated around they were uh posted on Reddit and they they were widely read uh they were widely discussed and Ultimately, they were unpersuasive. I think that the Gavin did not uh, engage in the rebuttals to his arguments. Uh, they Gavin was um, either out of just incompetence on his part or maliciousness, uh, creating uh, straw man arguments and not steel manning his opponents. And so, I think that that in, reduces your credibility uh, and reduces the credibility of of the consensus change that you're advocating for. 
um, which is unfair. Like I think that the in, the arguments for increasing the block size limit uh, pre segwit and then increasing the block size block weight limit post segwit and to this day, there are very good arguments for doing it, and they, in my view, have not had uh justice done to them by their proponents uh and it's kind of a shame because you know the the strongest argument against uh increasing the block size limit and the block weight limit is that we need to break this expectation that transactions on bitcoin are free or clo- or or of a negligible cost uh and start attaching a a cost to them because eventually we're going to hit a a block weight limit or a block or, well yeah let's call it a block weight limit at this point uh, that does reduce uh, decentralization and does so dramatically increase the run the cost of running a full node uh, that decentralization is impaired um, and you know that that might not be at the the limit that we're currently at of. 8 million weight units. Um, but we're not that far from it. And so why not break that expectation now? And once people have it firmly in mind that, no, look, transacting on-chain with Bitcoin um, has has consequences to it uh, and has a cost attached to it. And uh, as the transactor, you will uh, bear a significant amount of that cost you know, as, as kind of a proxy uh, to to you know, it's it's not like the transaction fees go to the nodes, but it certainly it works as a deterrent for you know mindless consumption of block space. Um, so I think that Gavin and uh, and Mike Kern and and Jeff Garzik could have put forth a, a really good solid case of look, we agree that we cannot continue to increase. Uh, block space consumption indefinitely. Uh, but, uh, and we agree that we're going to have to break user expectations eventually and that every business can't be, you know, validating or, or sorry, every business can't be, uh, you know, Visa on the blockchain. And, you know, we're not, we're not going to scale up to Visa and, and that's okay. But at this point in time, uh, it is sensible that we would, bump the block size limit a little bit and uh, kind of, yeah, it's kicking down the can down the road, um, but it's, it's the prudent thing to do. And, and we'll, we'll develop layer two over time and it's already in the works and uh, that'll be great when it happens. But in the meantime, like let's, let's buy ourselves a little breathing room. Uh, and I don't think that they made that argument particularly well. Yeah, I see. Yeah, no, I, those are good points as well. Okay, uh, let's now contrast Bitcoin's network governance versus other uh, blockchain governance. Uh, there was an interesting statement I saw by Nick Zabo, and he was saying blockchain governance generally comes in three varieties. One, Lord of the Flies. Two, lawyers. Or three, ruthlessly minimized. Uh, how would you uh, fit Bitcoin into that category and maybe compare it against some of the other alternatives? Yeah, Um so I, I think that in, in in this framework, it definitely fits on number three of ruthlessly minimized. And basically, in terms of minimizing the, um, and I, I would I would almost characterize it as a 
attack surface, uh, which is that people can use governance decisions to attack Bitcoin's consensus. And I would argue that's what happened with the block size limit. Um, but how you minimize that attack surface, how you how you minimize the scope that governance has to deal with is that you minimize the um, set of validation rules that form the consensus, right? The, the, the set of opcodes, uh, the set of different uh, denial of service uh, countermeasures, whether it's SIGOPs or the uh, block size limit, um, the, the set of block header uh, verification rules. And so there you could say like, like the biggest can of worms you could open and the biggest maximization of uh, governance that you could do would be to say, oh, you know what? We're going to have on-chain minor signaling for how many Bitcoins get created with each block, right? Like, all right, <laughs> now, now we have the FOMC. We've got, we've got a central banking monetary policy uh, Lord of the Flies situation with with Bitcoin's monetary policy. Like that would be the 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 ruthlessly maximizing the attack surface of governance. Um, so I'm using that kind of as a as a reductio ad absurdum of, uh, and so I think Bitcoin does a really good job of uh, ruthlessly minimizing the uh, validation rules that uh, are being governed, uh, and you can put Ethereum on the opposite end of the spectrum of we are running a what was a I don't know if it's still a Turing complete world computer where. There's basically an unbounded number of uh, verification rules of governance, uh, you know, attack surface. And not only that, but that's kind of on a technical level, on a social level, uh, we have an unbounded set of expectations from users of, um, yeah, people want to have health records on the Ethereum blockchain uh, but they also want to do uh, decentralized betting on Augur. They want to do, uh, you know, ICOs. They want to do DAOs. And what we saw with the DAO hack was that there are negative externalities from all of these different uh, user expectations that spill over onto the consensus rules, where essentially... You're having to uh, adjudicate disputes that emanate from people using your blockchain for non-payment, non-monetary use cases, um, and the what you know now. So you know, I was talking about Bitcoin improvement proposals. There's Ethereum improvement proposals, and so you have Ethereum improvement proposals relating to the monetary policy. You have them relating to fixing uh, people who have created smart contracts. Well, I call them smart contracts, but, you know, they're pretty stupid, uh, stupid contracts uh, that cause their funds to get stuck. And the only way to unstuck them is with hard fork. Uh, and now you, you have developers that are, you know, the judge, jury, prosecution and defense 
of all these uh, uh, these issues that are really are 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 are. are Oh, and you know what? I it's really unfair that I put Ethereum as the uh the opposite of Bitcoin. Because there are worse than Ethereum. There's EOS yes. and there's Ripple. Uh and you know, Ripple like has the ability to freeze XRP uh because Ripple is like a centralized system and they have to conform with uh anti-money laundering uh statutes here in the United States. And so if XRP needs to get frozen, uh, then Ripple needs to comply with that. Um, and and then with EOS, they they wrote a constitution, like in a Word document. So there it's like they're 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 trying to LARP, you know, they're they're role-playing as lawyers, uh, as the founding fathers of of this governance system. And and then you have people saying, well, you know what? Um People are creating Ponzi schemes on EOS and it's giving us a bad name. We should ban Ponzi schemes and we should seize their funds and give them back to the people who entered the Ponzi scheme. So at that point, you've basically recreated, uh, you know, the the existing financial system uh, in a ad hoc uh, Lord of the Flies slash uh, fake lawyers uh, scenario. <laughs> Excellent answer, Fia. I loved it. Excellent. Um, yeah, just a great summary of uh, the distinction between how Bitcoin works and how every other coin basically works. Uh, okay, so Bitcoin has changed and it's morphed over time. The, you know, there are things that we have. There are there are developments that happened that were that were just not described in the white paper. Do Do you have any examples of that? Uh, yeah, I think that, uh, actually I would go check out David Harding. He has like a errata page on the white paper, basically detailing a lot of things that were either, um, inaccurate in the white paper or have changed since the white paper. Um, or, uh, we've, we've learned more things since the white paper. I think that what was something to keep in mind, uh, I, my first point on this issue is that, uh, Satoshi wrote the code before writing the white paper. And this is kind of like a little known fact. Uh, and so we can kind of glean from that that the white paper is just a description of the software he wrote, a high level, very high level, and not entirely accurate and not fully specified. Like he doesn't say in the white paper, oh, there's only 21 million bitcoins. And in fact, the 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 first um you know release of bitcoin while while satoshi intended for there to only be 21 million bitcoins the code that he implemented that uh in was was not that uh it's uh, at the end of the creation of new bitcoins it resets and um peter wolla had to create a bip that addressed this bug as a soft fork uh to change Bitcoin's validation block validation rules so that we don't have more than 21 million Bitcoins getting created. So already we can see that, first of all, the white paper is not a specification and is just a a, a communication tool, really, of uh, him trying to... Because it's, it's very hard to put on a mailing list. Here's all this code I wrote. You guys have to go read through it now to understand what I did. 
You know, like that's kind of putting the burden on the reader. Uh, but Satoshi wrote a high level description of his solving the double spending problem with proof of work. Um, and that's that's kind of what our expectation of the white paper should be. We shouldn't try to expect more from the white paper than that. Uh, what we should expect, what what we should expect from is is the source code. And and then the second point is that that source code has evolved a lot and the network has evolved a lot. And the reason that the network has evolved beyond what Satoshi described is that it's decentralized. So if Bitcoin was centralized, then yeah, it would be easy to set it in stone and make sure it never changes. But because Bitcoin is decentralized, there's nothing stopping Bitcoiners from having Bitcoin evolve into something other than what Satoshi envisioned. And that's okay. Like, I don't think that we should manacle and shackle ourselves to what we think Satoshi's vision was, right? Uh, because he's he's not around to tell us whether we're correct about uh, our uh, reading into what he wrote. Uh, and we don't know that Satoshi wouldn't have changed his mind about things as they evolved. So it, it's, it's, it's wild to suggest that Satoshi had a... Uh, foresight and he's a soothsayer and he can predict the future and and satoshi said that this will be bitcoin and thus you know he he would never have changed his mind and he would never have um updated the the code or something like that it's like it's bizarre to see people saying this and it's 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 the craziest form of worship in my mind um the, the kind of uncritical uh, assumption and and then it's it's all also utter pure hypocrisy in the sense that a lot of the people promoting this point of view of Satoshi as a uh a soothsayer and a, a visionary is that uh they 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 are they are in the Bitcoin Cash camp. And Bitcoin Cash is not only hard forked to increase the block size limit back to where it was before Satoshi implemented the one megabyte limit. Um, but they've also, uh, you know, made other changes to the validation rules that Satoshi didn't envision either, um, and have added back opcodes that Satoshi had removed and want to add new opcodes that Satoshi did not, uh, predict would happen. So, um, it's kind of, uh, I don't, I don't think that there is, uh, well, so the only implementation that truly follows Satoshi's vision is the one that he released back in 2009. Uh, and no one runs that anymore. So I think that we should kind of accept that uh, things have moved on since. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And I mean, there's obviously, I will link that uh, David Harding page. It's a great page. I think it's called Bitcoin Errata. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely link that. And uh, there's definitely a lot of um, a lot of things that have changed. So there were many things that were not described in the white paper. So multi-sig mining coins, the 21 million coin cap, uh, AS ASIC mining, 10 minute block times, HD address generation, um, a bunch of things. And then th another tweet I saw was explaining what the white paper actually got wrong. So the security model, uh, Moore's law is not reliable. The longest chain is not secure. The SPV, a.k.a. Uh, the fraud proofs or alerts, this concept of one CPU, one vote. So, yeah, I think you've outlined a lot of great points around why Bitcoin has changed. And it, 
it, it necessarily must change because it is decentralized. Uh, I, I think. Okay. The, well, I think. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Uh, the the most important one in in my mind, uh, at least politically, that you listed there is is the SPV security, which is that. Um, SPV currently in Bitcoin is like profoundly broken uh, from both a security and privacy perspective. And uh, I think that right now, the, the, the only trustless way to use Bitcoin is to run a fully validating node. Uh, and so I think that if, if Satoshi were around, uh, he would probably agree with that assertion. And there's a lot more work that needs to go into SPV uh, before we can say that it is... Uh, as secure or as trustless as running a full node. I mean, not that I don't think that it will ever be as trustless, but at least approaching that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that, 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 those are good points as well. Uh, okay, so I think, um, have you got any other points that you wanted to make at this point, Pierre? We might start wrapping up. So just any final comments on Bitcoin governance? Um, yeah, I, I, I want to see, I want to see more Bitcoin core contributors. Um, and I want to see more, uh, players in the ecosystem, uh, forming their own teams of Bitcoin core contributors. So like, you've got like the chain code labs guys who are doing a fantastic job. You've got Blockstream guys who are doing a fantastic job. You've got independent contributors here and there, you know, uh, Jim Poston at Coinbase done a fantastic job. Uh, you got Schwartz Provost at, uh, blockchain.com. Uh, Excellent. I want to see more. I, and I, I think that um, there is definitely room for a, a huge increase of Bitcoin core contributors, uh, both from people who are looking at the Bitcoin protocol itself um, and who are making improvements to the reference implementation, modernizing the code, refactoring it, reviewing pull requests with a very close eye. Uh, improving the test framework for Bitcoin Core, um, improving the tooling around it, uh, indexing, you know, addresses, uh, you know, all, all these different um, things that it's I, I, it's fantastic what what the current set of contributors is doing, and we're getting lots of new contributors all the time. Um, but I really think that it's not like we're at a saturation point. I, I don't think that. There's too many cooks in the kitchen at all. Um, and if you look at the Linux kernel, there, there's kind of, you know, it started out with just Linus Torvalds in the 90s, or I think it might have been the late 80s, early 90s. But um, it, it grew and grew and grew. And now you have hyper-specialized kernel developers who are very focused on one specific part of the kernel. And because the code base is highly modular, uh, they, they don't actually have to, you know, worry about the rest of the code base. And I, I'd like to see the same with uh, the reference implementation, where we can have dozens of regular contributors um, that are uh, working on their own parts of the code base, and there's all of these changes roll up the uh, the, the 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 chain of maintainers, uh, so that there's kind of a, a coherent um, you know code style and all of this, but. Yeah, I, there's there's just more resources that can go into Bitcoin Core development, um, and I'm I'm disappointed when I hear people uh, complain about the direction of Bitcoin Core or uh, complain about the um, perceived 
power of uh, certain Bitcoin core contributors because I really think it's just a matter of stepping up. And um, the sooner you step up and start contributing, the better because you start building a reputation. And that reputation then will allow you to make more and more substantive changes to the code base until finally, you know, you're you're the one proposing a soft fork or, uh, God forbid, the day happens, a, a hard fork. <laughs> and uh-huh. um, you you have the clout and the reputation and the credibility to actually be taken seriously. And so, yeah, I, I just want to see more Bitcoin core contributors. I think that's that's the 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 most the healthiest thing we could see for Bitcoin's governance today. Yeah, fantastic. Agreed with that. Okay, guys. So you can find Pierre on Twitter at Pierre underscore Rochard. Definitely, if you're not already subscribed, look up his podcast that he co-hosts with Michael Goldstein. Look up Noted Podcast and you can find the website for that. I think it's noted.org, right? That's correct. Yes, N-O-D-E-D. Yep. And also check out his uh, site and company Bitcoin Advisory. Uh, yeah, so the, so uh, thanks very much, Pierre, and uh, appreciate your coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Okay, guys. So that was the episode with Pierre, and that is SLP11. So if you go on my website, stefanlevera.com, you can find the show notes for that. Um, if you want to just, if you got value out of this, remember to subscribe to the podcast, Stefan Levera Podcast, on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. Um, just yeah, subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. Any feedback, come and find me on Twitter at Stefan Levera. That's it for me, guys, and I'll speak to you next time.